Have you ever heard the sounds of the sea? Of whales and dolphins, snapping shrimp, boat noise, and military sonar? Welcome to Unsonorous Seas. My name is Barry Killin, and I'm an artist from the Isle of Iona. Join me as I encounter vastness, complexity and wonder in the sounds of the seas that surround the chain of Scottish islands known as the Hebrides. This story begins with a stranded whale and takes us deep into another world of human and non-human sounds. Come listen to the sea and what it can reveal to us. Follow the story online at unsonorousseas.com. Welcome to the final episode in this series of Unsonorous Seas. I am delighted to be talking with Dr. Denise Riche from the Scottish Association for Marine Science. Denise is a marine mammal ecologist interested in the study of underwater sounds and aquatic soundscapes to investigate how marine species use and are impacted by sound. She is also interested in the development of acoustic methods to study species distribution and diversity as a tool for conservation. And Denise was one of the first scientists I spoke to about the project, and she has been incredibly supportive from the beginning. In fact, when I approached the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust initially, they said right away, you must speak to Denise at SAMS. So I did, and now I'm really happy that we can share some of the conversations that we've had with our listeners, Denise. So it's great to have this opportunity, especially following the really informative and enjoyable talk you gave at the Unsonorous Seas events last month. And you opened your presentation by totally busting the Cousteau myth of the silent world of our oceans. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the human and the non-human noises that make up the sonic environment and perhaps play us some sounds that we can listen to as well. Yeah, sure. Thank you very much, first of all, Vary, for the opportunity to speak with you about underwater sounds and the impacts of underwater noise on marine mammals and the underwater soundscape overall, which, as you know, is, is an issue close to my heart. Regarding a question on the Jacques Cousteau's movie, The Silent World, as, as he uh, called it in the 1960s, it, it is true, it, it is a little bit of a myth and likely due to the fact that the ability or our ability to listen to the the underwater soundscapes developed fairly late. So so we typically when when we are diving underwater, our ears are not equipped to listen to the underwater soundscape. So it took us a while to catch on to the fact that there's actually quite a lot of sound out there. And that's because all or most of the animals in the sea and particularly marine mammals are, have evolved to use sound as their main modal mode way of experiencing the world. And that is because sound travels so much better underwater than light and so much further. And light doesn't penetrate much 
beyond the first few meters uh, from the surface. So, so, so sound is really the, the better way to communicate underwater. And that's what most of marine species are doing. So we have um, sounds uh, produced from the large whales, the really low frequency infrasound that our human ears can't even hear. And all the way up to the ultrasonic sounds of harbor porpoises, a species that we have in, in our um, seas of the Hebrides quite commonly. People probably are familiar with them. They're producing very high frequency clicks like bats. And so, so across the range of, of frequencies, we have um, different species making sounds for all aspects of their lives. And similarly, fish as well as invertebrates are also producing various sounds to navigate, to find food, um, to yeah, during so social interactions. So it's not just marine mammals, but uh, some of the probably the, the most fascinating fascinating sounds underwater, in, in my own opinion, and, um, and that's, that's what I study, the sounds of the various marine mammal species, and I can play you some examples. So the first one that I would play is the Song of the Humpback Whale, which um, a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with. Um, humpback whale males are singing 20-minute long songs every year, and, and they're changing the songs over time. And, and the fascinating thing is that, that these songs are socially shared. So within a population, everyone is singing the same song every year. So this is what it sounds like. Similarly, seals also produce underwater sounds and especially the Arctic seal species like the bearded seal producing hauntingly beautiful sounds um, that you wouldn't necessarily expect to come from a seal. And here's an example of a bearded seal and Arctic seal species where the males are producing these sounds to attract females during the mating season. It's wonderful to hear both those examples, Denise, and I know you've got more that you're going to play, but I remembered hearing them when you gave your talk on Iona and the reaction from the audience was quite interesting. There was there was so much surprise, I think, mm -hmm. in, in the complexity of the sounds and, and also what you were describing, the, the pattern of the humpback whales, that they learn a new song 
every year and that the whole the whole pod learn the song. It's not simply between mother and calf or or mating pairs. It becomes the language of the group. And as an observer at, the, at that presentation, it was it was just really lovely to to watch the responses and the surprise and the the engagement and actually also the the joy that I could see on people's faces as they listened to these sounds. It was really a process of sharing and revealing another world. And I know you've got some more sounds to play just now and talk about. So please go ahead. Yeah, so exactly. And I think you really captured my fascination with the underwater soundscape there. It is fascinating to, to hear these sounds, especially the unexpected ones. And we are still also in the process of, of discovering them, you know, for many species. We maybe know one or two call types, but we don't know the full repertoire. And there's a lot of species out there, even marine mammals, so species that are um, not necessarily small or difficult to see, but we don't know what they sound like. So there's there's so many discoveries still to be made. And that's what is so fascinating and makes it also so important to conserve these soundscapes and be careful about how noisy we are and how we are impacting them. So another example are these uh, sounds of the group of dolphins producing these higher pitched clicks and whistles uh, for social communication and also for foraging. And then we have the sounds of killer whales or orcas who live in very stable uh, social groups and who have um, sounds that are uh, specific to a particular family group. So they're using particularly calls to identify each other as belonging to a certain group. And here are examples of the same call type used by different orca families uh, recorded in the Pacific Northwest in Canada. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the slight different production of the sound type just as you'll hear the same call but made by a different family and that just signifies which group that individual belongs to. Listening to these sounds it really helps us to understand how evolved these species are and I was fortunate enough to be on board the Saludian when the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust captured their first ever orca recording. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing in the in the league of the ones that you've just played, but still very exciting to have captured that noise for the first time. Mm -hmm. So I felt very privileged to be part of that. Yeah, definitely. And we, we don't uh, often uh, record the, the West Coast orca community here uh, in Scotland because there's not that many animals left. Um, so yeah, that would have been a, a real privilege to record the voices of those animals. I haven't heard them yet in the wild, so I'm a bit jealous. <laughs> 
can you talk about some of the anthropogenic or human sounds? Yeah, exactly. So increasingly, and that's also what a lot of our work at, at SAMS is focusing on, is we hear uh, human-made noises in many parts of the ocean, particularly in, in, in our coastal waters, of course, but also more and more in the offshore regions of, of the oceans. As I, as I said, uh, sound travels very well underwater, five times faster than in air. So sound waves just have a much further reach than we would imagine. And that's particularly so for the low frequencies that are produced by ships and heavy traffic, for example. So all the goods that we are transporting from one continent to the other, which typically happens via marine traffic, produces a lot of noise in our ocean. Then there's other sounds, for example, um, the seismic air guns that are being used for oil and gas prospecting that have an, a reach over hundreds of miles and, and they're, they're producing these low frequency um, sonic sounds that can impact various uh, species and, and create situations of, of masking communication. We've got construction of harbors of marine renewable um, energy uh, projects at the moment, um, of course, in, in our European waters and, and in other, other continents as well. And, and those activities also produce noise. And then we've got military sonar, again, a low frequency sound source or low to mid-frequency sound source that is very loud and therefore can travel vast distances. Yeah, and I remember the visual that you showed when you did your presentation and, you know, basically what the visual showed us was that the range that a whale had in in like a certain period as a previous period of time as opposed to now has decreased enormously so in her book Rebecca Giggs talks about cetaceans are seeing less of their world they're experiencing less of their world because we have such a need to experience and extract from it yeah if we imagine that they use hearing in the way that we use sight mm-hmm. And we're actually reducing the depth of experience of their whole environment and how they engage socially and how they find food. And it was really what seeing that visual was, you know, so dramatic, the the shrinkage of territory that they could communicate over because of human sound pollution. That's exactly it. That's a very important point. And, and though we don't fully understand over which distances large whales, for example, communicate, we can theoretically predict the ranges over which they could hear each other. And and those ranges of habitats, those square miles, were, were a lot larger um, in a period when there was less shipping traffic and other activities, for example, than we have now and that will affect, as you said, every aspect of of their lives as they're using sound uh, like we do use our eyes um, for for all aspects of their lives. They're using it to forage, to find their mates, to find their social group, to stay in touch with one another. So it's vitally important that they can hear and also that they can, because the ocean doesn't really have boundaries, so they are spread and they they use large distances. They, They move very large distances on migration 
migration, humpback whales um, moving between the Caribbean and the Arctic from their feeding to their breeding grounds, like uh, many other species as well. So they need to sound is really the, the sense that they use in order to navigate where they are going, but also to stay in touch with one another, to signal to each other where the food sources are. So by reducing the range over which they can hear um, through acoustic masking, we are basically yeah, reducing their world. And, and we, can, we can relate to that as humans as well. If you think about going to a, a loud party where there's lots of people talking all at the same time, it, it can be difficult um, even if you're standing close to someone to communicate with that person versus if you went with that same person on a walk in a forest, you might you know, it might be a lot less strenuous to talk to that person and have a good conversation. And that's basically an analogy that's, um, but, but thinking, what we really need to think about is what we do in a chronic way. You know, we are a lot of habitats we are, we are impacting with sound chronically. So it's not an event that happens and then it's over again, but in many areas of the world, um, especially in coastal areas that experience a lot of shipping, the sound can be very continuous. And that is something we need to think about because it basically impacts those animals that live there across months, years and potentially their whole lifetime. And that will also affect ultimately their health and their ability to survive and have offspring. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I know that you work closely with the Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme as as well, and that what they deal with in terms of doing necropsy work on cetaceans that have come ashore or stranded or whether they've come they've died at sea and then washed ashore. That's the hard evidence, isn't it? That's that's really when you're you know, we're because everything is so hidden in the sea, isn't it? We're not aware, mm-hmm. as you said, up until technology allowed us to, we weren't even aware of the level of the sonic environment that the marine habitat had. And I think that, that you know, when you see the, some of the images of the animals that the Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme have dealt with, that's kind of like the hard and fast evidence, isn't it, when, when it really hits home? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So in certain situations, if we see animals trend due to a acoustic trauma, then we can investigate their ears. And if the animals are fresh enough, uh, we can look at the hair cells in their ears to establish whether there is, was hearing damage due to uh, noise. And that's that's the hard evidence that shows us that this animal died because of, our, of, of a direct uh, impact due to noise. But those cases are rare because we are often too late at the scene to really um, tell what happened. But we do know enough about the mechanism mechanisms of how sound can impact behavior, but also how it can have physiological impact on individuals to know that it can be very damaging. And exactly what you've described is what happened with the 2018 incident that, you know, the whole project is based around. By the time the the bodies of the beaked whales had come ashore, they were so badly decomposed that the kind of um, really forensic pathology, the time for that had had passed completely. Mm-hmm. But I do know that there was modelling done and there were other ways of trying to work out in the absence of that pathology. There were, there were other ways of trying to work out what possibly had happened to the whales. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about that, Denise. Yeah, so we, we could rule out, I'm, I'm not a pathologist, but in, in conversations with our colleagues at the Scottish Marine Stranding Scheme at a 
became clear that they ruled out um, disease um, fairly early on because there were no evidence in, in the uh, carcasses that had been washed ashore. They were also progressively, as the strandings went on, you know, the first strandings were in, discovered in Ireland in, in July, I think, and then later on they, they moved up the coast towards the north coast of Scotland. And what we saw is that um, the animals, as they came to shore later on, became more and more decomposed, which kind of indicated that those animals likely died within a reasonably short period of time. And we just saw those those latest trendings due to the ocean currents and the fact that we were up in the northern part of Scotland, further away from where there was a likely impact. And colleagues of mine did some oceanographic modeling, so modeling of the ocean currents and the weather patterns around that time period and could identify a potential area where something might have happened, like an acoustic event that might have led to the of these animals at sea, after which we then saw the strandings, first in Ireland and then up the coast of Scotland. So, so there were indications that it wasn't a random disease outbreak, because if we would see a disease outbreak, we would see uh, various states of decomposition show up at, at various beaches. But this was an event that, that developed over a couple of weeks and the animals got more and more decomposed, which led us to believe that it was an event that, ha- that happened out at sea in a fairly short time period. And it's consistent with trending events that we have seen in relation to military sonar in other areas of the world in previous years. Yeah, and I wonder if you can just explain a little bit about the overlay of those acoustic environments, why the military sonar in particular is so damaging to the species of whale. So the reason by the species that we've been seeing stranded in this particular event in 2018 has to do with how these uh, species, which are called beaked whales, live. So they are uh, deep diving animals that go down to 3,000 meters or more. They can dive for up to three hours at a time. They, they live really far offshore, so we don't know that much about them. But what we do know from experiments that have been carried out since those first trendings in relation to military sonar have happened in the early 2000s or in in the 90s. We do know that that they show a dive response in relation to, to sound. So they seem to come up much faster from... Uh, deep down than they normally would. And and then they can develop some, something that is similar to the bends. So they, um, they basically, um, uh, um, there's this bubble formation in their bloodstream that, that can um, create um, physiological responses that may lead to stranding. So that's, that's the process that we think um, might make those particular species particularly vulnerable to, to these sounds. And do you, I mean, do you know, Denise, and maybe, I mean, you possibly can't answer this question, but is there much communication between the military and organisations like SAMS and SMAS and and scientists like yourself? Um, You know, because surely cooperation is the way to try and mitigate, you know, this huge event that happened in 2018, the biggest global stranding ever of beat whales. Yeah, there is communication and and a lot of what we know about these species has been, you know, learned by scientists collaborating with with Navy scientists um, over the last couple of years. But there's also a gap of communication when 
certain events happen when when military sona is used in an active way then then there's there's a gap of communication so we know less than we would like to know in in order to put the strandings that we see on the beach together with what actually happened and um, we don't always get the full picture but that being said there is an exchange as much as there can be so do you know if there are areas in the world where mitigation particularly around military sonar has worked. Are there models that we could be following in this country that we know have worked yeah. elsewhere? So the simplest way to avoid um, future strandings, and we have an example for that uh, from the Canary Islands, is to separate the habitat of these animals from military activity. That's the easiest way to do it. So spatial, creating spatial exclusion zones, um, marine protected areas in which these sounds cannot be used, in particular in areas that we know are important for these animals. Um, the Canary Islands implemented a ban of military sonar in their waters and they haven't seen uh, strandings since that ban in their water. So that the, the separation of the noise and the animals is the easiest and most effective form of mitigation that we can take. And do you think some of the work that SAMS is involved in could feed into that kind of policy change, Denise? Yeah, but what we are particularly interested in here, here at SAMS is to um, to learn more about the the different species of, of cetaceans and marine mammals more generally in our waters, and and beaked whales are one of those groups of species that we are studying and, and are keen to learn more about. It's quite expensive to go out and do this research, especially the further offshore you go. But we are hoping with a long-term acoustic monitoring efforts, and, and that's that's something what, that we are working on and trying to implement um, more regularly in our waters here uh, in, the, in the Scottish Scottish seas, is we'll, we'll learn more about these animals, know which areas are important for them at what time of year, um, that will help to to think about these, you know, marine protected areas more generally, and also which yeah to, to come up with effective management plans to protect these species from underwater noise and other threats. It's very heartening to hear that, Denise, and uh, you know that's a very important aspect, obviously, of the work that you're doing. Uh, and how how about commercial shipping? Because that's a huge issue as well, as you've already spoken about. Are there other examples around the world where changes are taking place to limit the damage? Yeah, so shipping is actually one of the areas in terms of underwater noise where there's a, quite a lot of effort globally um, put into trying to find ways to reduce impact. You can, for example, have ships go slower. You, you can change shipping routes out, you can, uh, out of areas where we know um, um, sensitive uh, species live and spend a lot of time. That has the, the benefit that we are reducing the noise pollution in their habitats, but also that we reduce the risk of collision between whales and ships. So um, a double benefit there. So yeah, so making ships go slower will reduce the noise, their noise footprint. And there's also new technologies in terms of um, ship propellers, ship design, where engineering technology meant policymakers and biologists can really work together in order to create change and reduce underwater noise. And that's um, starting starting to happen. There's various initiatives globally, which is very encouraging to see. Yeah, no, it's great to hear that as mm. well. And I think part of the aim of the project has been to bring these issues more to the public attention as well, because 
Jacques Cousteau's beautiful film has a lot to answer for, and maybe it's time for a remake. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I wonder if you can... I, I know that organisations like SAMS and Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust are very open and receptive to working with the creative sector and, and creative individuals to interpret data and to communicate data and, and its implications to the wider public. And I just wondered if you could, we, you know, we can finish maybe by talking a little bit about what it is about that partnership between art and science and what does it contribute to building understanding and, and engagement? Yeah, I think it's extremely important. And I think um, your project and your engagement and efforts with Sonor on Sonorous Seas as a perfect example of a really fruitful collaboration that brings the science that we do to a much wider audience than we typically reach as, as scientists. And, and it gives us as scientists the opportunity to reach out beyond our typical audiences. And, and so I think it's, 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 it's really helpful and should be done a lot more on all sorts of topics. I, I think in addition to that, scientific narratives, uh, stories and stories that are told through the arts can really enhance one another because they ask questions, sometimes the same questions, sometimes different questions, sometimes the same questions in a different way and really allow us to look back at at our own work and see other aspects, maybe come up with new ideas and also translate what we do and the impact and importance of the science that, that we gather to a wide audience of from, from all kinds of backgrounds. And I think that's that's really where this collaboration is really powerful. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to more of it in the future because I, I really, really enjoyed it. And as I said, especially looking back at, at our own work and, and being asked questions or asking myself questions due to the way you looked at the issue and, and told it back to us um, has been really enlightening. Oh, no, that's a beautiful way of describing it, you know, and it's it has been an exchange, you know, the, the project mm -hmm. could, not have, could not have happened. It simply wouldn't have happened without the support of SAMS and Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust and Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme as well. Um, so it has been an exchange and it has, it's really fortified the whole process to be able to work with people like yourself, Denise. It's a lovely way to end this podcast series speaking to you. And I really hope that there's going to be another series, maybe in mm -hmm. the spring next year. And um, I'll be able to come back and find out a bit more about what Sam's have been doing and how your own research is progressing. So thank you so much, Denise, for your time today and for all the time and your contribution to On Sonorous Seas. It's been absolutely fantastic and a pleasure to be working with you. Thank you very much. The pleasure was mutual, <laughs> definitely. Thank you. On Sonorous Seas is a story told with the voices of science, art, music and poetry, and it explores the impact of military sonar and the ecology of the seas surrounding the Hebrides. The project is supported by the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, the Scottish Association for Marine Science, Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme and the National Museum of Scotland. On Sonorous Seas is funded through Antoper and Mull Theatre, Creative Scotland, The Space CIC, Culture, Heritage and Arts, Argyle and Isles, and AN Bursaries. The sounds in this podcast series have been used with kind permission of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, 
and the Scottish Association for Marine Science. This podcast was co-produced by Barry Killen and Fergus Hall, edited by Fergus Hall, with sound compositions by Fergus Hall.